Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Howard Hendricks. According to a 2003 Dallas Morning News article about him, the combined ministries of just eight of his former students, a veritable who's who of evangelical Christians, reach close to 30,000 people in pews every week. And you add radio programs and books to that number, the audience expands to millions. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on the barriers to worship. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, may I invite you to turn in our Father's Word the Gospel by Mark, Mark chapter 14. While you're turning there, may I remind you, this is not what Christ would say if he were here, but what he is saying because he is here. Have you ever wondered why there is so much failure recorded in the Bible? It's obvious to an even casual reader of this book that its pages are strewn with the wreckage and debris of men and women who have failed in their faith. These facts of failure tell me two very important truths about the Bible. They tell me, first of all, that God, not man, wrote this book. Man tends to gloss over the sins of his contemporaries. He whitewashes his fellow man, but not God. When he paints the portrait of a man or a woman, he paints them warts and all. These facts of failure also tell me that the God who wrote this book was a God of grace who wanted me to profit from the experiences of failure in the life of others. They're like flashing red lights which say, watch out, caution, danger. It can happen here. I suppose there is no more familiar defection in all of the Bible than the one recorded in Mark chapter 14 from the life of our friend Peter. We love Peter because he reminds us so much of ourselves. But I would like to suggest for your thinking that Peter's failure was not a blowout. It was a slow leak. In fact, it always is in the spiritual realm. Oh, I know it appears to you as if people drop over the side of a precipice, but may I remind you that all you are seeing is the end product of a process which has been going for some time. And for a few moments, I'd like to trace the steps of Peter's failure because I think they are inseparably related to the concept of worship. His failure was a series of barriers to worship that you and I face. Verses 27 through 31, we are introduced to the first mistake that Peter made and that we are prone to make. That's the mistake of boasting too much. 
Our Lord said, all you will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. But Peter, whenever Peter enters the narrative, it's always with a thud. This man had a tremendous facility for opening his mouth, putting both feet into it, and wondering why he couldn't walk. The original hoof and mouth disease. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Lord, I don't know about the rest of these men, but you can count on me. And in grace, our Lord attempts to stab him awake when he said, I tell you the truth, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Peter, it's sooner than you think. But Peter kept on insisting emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Lord, my devotion is so great, it's willing to go to the point of death. Mark adds P.S. And all the others said the same. They reflected his sentiments. I've often asked myself, as I suppose you have, what was Peter's problem? I'd like to suggest for your thinking that Peter's problem was not a problem of insincerity. I seriously question if Peter was ever more sincere than on this occasion. In fact, as we're going to see, he was willing to take on a hundred men single-handedly to back up the claim. Peter's problem was not a problem of insincerity. His problem was a problem of ignorance. Peter did not know Peter. And my friends, that's your problem. That's my problem. And every time you and I say, Lord, you can count on me, we're about to step on a spiritual banana peel. We're going to sprawl in the faith. Shortly after I became a Christian, someone wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible these words. When I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. A world of theology wrapped up in that couplet. You see, the flesh only knows one thing, and that's failure. And by the way, God has no self-improvement program for your flesh. If you should live to be a hundred years in the faith, you would still have all of the capabilities of sin that are described so vividly in the Word of God. It's only when I take each and every step by means of the Holy Spirit that I can live so as to please him. See, the Christian life is not difficult, men and women. It's impossible. It's a supernatural life, and it is not until the Holy Spirit invades my life that I can ever live so as to please him. Has the Spirit ever etched upon the ledger of your life those words that fell from the lips of the Savior? Without me, You can do nothing. 
Oh, the utter finality of those words. Something. Nothing. Greatest barrier to worship, in my judgment, is self-confidence. It's somehow feeling I can pull it off. I can remember when I came across that verse in John 15 years ago as a young Christian. I said to myself, Lord, that can't be true. Without me, you can do nothing. You can get an education without Jesus Christ. People do it all the time. You can make a million dollars without Jesus Christ. You can do all kinds of things without Jesus Christ. But my friends, you cannot become like Christ without Jesus Christ. You cannot live the Christian life on the basis of self-confidence. Isn't that the primary thrust of Isaiah's experience in chapter 6? He said, when I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, then I said, woe is me. I'm living in a community of unclean people, and I am one of them. See, when your attention and mine is riveted upon the living Lord, when you fully glimpse who he is, then you fall upon your face in worship. It's everything coming from God. It's nothing coming from me. My only responsibility is the responsibility of obedience. And the moment I understand the truth that God has revealed, then the ball is in my court. Peter made a second mistake. It's found in verses 32 to 42. And I want you to mark the connection. It's the mistake of praying too little. And by the way, Whenever you boast too much, you will always pray too little. See, if I have adequate intellect, why pray? If I have adequate finances, why pray? It's only when I understand that I bankrupt, that my need is not partial, it's total that I will ever get serious about praying. You know the story. Our Lord took Peter, James, and John to a solitary place, and the text says, verse 33, he was deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed to the point of death, invited them to stay there and keep watch. He went a little further and then returned. And in verse 37 we read, when he returned to his disciples, he found them sleeping. Now mark it well. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? The original text, this is in the most emphatic position. Simon, are you asleep? You are the last person in the world that ought to be asleep. But he's out like a light. And then he adds those intriguing words. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Every now and then, a church asked me to propose 
a verse of scripture to go across the front of their newly constructed auditorium. And I've often thought this would be very appropriate. You'll have to take this by faith, but I used to play baseball back before the earth's crust hardened. <laughs> and I still enjoy a good professional game. And some time ago, in order to cultivate a lost man in my community, I took him and his boys and my boys. We went to a professional ball game. And with all of my interest in baseball, I have never seen a more boring game in all of my life. I just about fell asleep between pitches. But my friend was sitting on the edge of his chair yelling his head off at what I'll never know. Next Sunday we took him to church. Man, we're scarcely 10 minutes into the service before he's in the second or third stage of anesthesia. <laughs> Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If your experience matches mine, men and women, the one area in your Christian life in which you are shot down in flames is your prayer life. How do you account for that? See, that's not the product of an accident. That's the product of cultivation. The devil doesn't mind if you study the scriptures just so you don't pray because then it will never get into your life but you will develop a severe case of intellectual pride which will paralyze your usefulness. Devil doesn't mind if you witness just so you don't pray because he knows if you don't that it's far more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Devil doesn't mind if you become neurotically, compulsively active down at the local church or in the ministry in which you are involved just so you don't pray because then nothing will happen anyway. But all the time, you will be active without accomplishment. I think one of the great problems we have in worship today is that we oftentimes come to a service of worship unprepared. I still remember that verse that hit me so hard. And that's the verse that says, in effect, you cannot come into the presence of God with dirty hands, with a dirty heart. You see, worship essentially is the understanding my need is not partial, it's total. And my pride manifests itself in the fact that prayer is so low on my priority list. A student came to me some time ago. He was having a problem Unfortunately, I had to catch a plane, and I said, let me recommend you to a pastor friend of mine here I think can be very helpful to you. So I went to the pastor and talked with him for a while, and the pastor said, I just want to ask you one question. He said, what is it? You spend much time in prayer? Well, no. As a matter of fact, I, that's a weak area of my life. Let me ask you another question. 
Why are you so proud? And the man was jarred. I mean, he said, (laughs) you know, I do have a problem with this, but uh, how did you know? He said, by the answer to my first question, when you tell me you do not pray, then I know you are a proud individual. Now, I know what you are thinking. Some of you are saying out there, well, you know, Brother Hendricks, I just have a problem with that language, you know. I can't say it right. I think I'll scream the next time I come into a meeting and they call on me to pray. You know, here comes Brother Hendricks from the cemetery. (laughs) You know, say us a prayer. I think they think we teach these things down there. (laughs) A guy come to Christ through our home Bible class ministry some years ago delightful guy. Told him, look, the purpose of the class has been fulfilled. Now you ought to join a good Bible-believing teaching church where you can build on the foundation. First question, obviously, is where do you go? That's where he shows up. So he comes on Sunday morning. The pastor says, now tonight we have time of Bible study and fellowship and sharing. Love to have you. This guy doesn't know enough not to show up. He shows up for the Sunday night service. Sunday night, the pastor says, now on Wednesday night, we also have prayer meeting and Bible study. This guy doesn't know enough not to show up. He shows up Wednesday. Because when he grows up to be an elder, you know, spiritually mature enough to be qualified, then he won't come like the elders. But in the meantime, it's, you know. So we are uh, in a Bible study. Then we break up, go down the hall to get into different prayer groups, the women here, the college kids, high school, so forth. We're going down the hall. He says, hey, Holly, I got a problem. I said, what's your problem? He said, are we going down here to pray? I said, right. He said, I, I can't say it the way you guys say it. Well, I said, thank God for that, man. <laughs> so he came. I knew he wanted to participate. Pretty soon I reached over and I squeezed his thigh. I'll never forget this guy's prayer. I wish I had this on video. We could sell it through Moody. <laughs> Support this place. He said, Lord... This is Jim. I'm the one that met you last week, remember? I really thought he'd give God a zip code. He said, I'm sorry I can't say it the way the rest of these guys say it, but I'd just like you to know I really love you. Honestly, I do. Thanks a lot. I'll see you later. And you know what he did, men and women? He turned on a prayer meeting. Because the rest of us were saying our prayers, reviewing our theology, taking our tour of the mission field. (laughs) So I love to work with children and new converts. They are so refreshing. Ladies and gentlemen, how could God be impressed with your lingo? when the only thing that really hacks it with him is your heart. Our greatest barrier to worship is that we are not learning that our need is not partial, it's total. Therefore, I have no other option. It's moment-by-moment dependence. Well, he makes a third mistake. 
And it's always the result of the others. And that's in 43 to 50 where he acted too soon. Nobody here has this problem, but Peter did. You remember uh, Judas with the band of soldiers come under cover of darkness? Verse 47 says, Then one of those standing near, another of the Gospels tells us it was Peter, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. You know, there's a lot of humor in the scriptures. Have you discovered that? Every time I read this, I roar. Do you get the picture? Here he is, out like a light. And all of a sudden, perhaps as the scuffling of the soldier's feet or the brandishing of the swords, he comes into consciousness and says, man, now's the time to go into action. Now, he's got a couple problems. First, he's sleepy. I really appreciate that. Somebody called me up some time ago, 3 o'clock in the morning, wanted to know if this was Joe's Tavern. Now, I'm not even sure I had the right end of the telephone up, much less was I coherent. Second place, he was angry. And a person who is angry is never fully under control. But in the third place, he was a fisherman. (laughs) And fishermen make poor swordsmen. (laughs) See, the Roman Empire required every Roman soldier to practice a minimum of an hour a day, taking his sword out of his sheath, bringing it over his head so that he could get full leverage, coming down in this fashion. The helmets were welded right down the middle. If you could hit the weld, split it, dispose of the victim. He saw it all the time. No question in my mind, this is what he's trying to do. (laughs) But he's slightly off target. Wonderful to read the various passages of Scripture that tell the story. Because the Lord turns to him and says, Peter, put your sword away. You, you don't understand what it's about. If my purposes were carnal, I could summon 12 legions of angels. They'd be dispatched from heaven in a moment and liquidate the enemy. My purposes are spiritual. And I reflect upon that almost every day. You ask, what was Peter's problem? The same one you and I have faced today. And will every day of our life. And that is, we are active when we should be passive. And we're passive when we should be active. Let me give you an illustration Do you ever have an opportunity to share your faith? I mean, it is a choice opportunity. You've been praying for this for years, and the Lord opens the door so you can put a 747 through it, but you're silent in 22 languages. And then somebody calls you and says, Mert, I know I shouldn't tell you this, but in order that you might pray more intelligently... And then they unload the gossip. But you wouldn't tell anyone. I wouldn't think of it. But you can hardly wait to get off the phone to get back on. See, our church's Christian work in general is filled with people who are passive when they should be active and active when they should be passive. You see, when he should have been active in prayer, he was passive in sleep. 
when he should have been passive in resignation to the will of God, he's active with a sword. Cause of Jesus Christ in many parts of the world, and certainly in America, is decimated by people who are acting in the energy of the flesh, but not the power of the Spirit. There's one final mistake he made. Don't miss it or you'll lose it all. It's found in verses 66 to 72. That's the mistake of thinking too little, too late. Text says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand it. You're out of your gourd. That's in the Greek text. (laughs) So when the servant girl saw him again, she said again, literally she kept saying to them, this is one of them, this is one of them, this is one, nothing like a persistent woman. (laughs) And after a little while, those standing said, surely you're one of them for you are a Galilean. He had a Galilean accent and if you heard it, you would never forget it. Far more pronounced than anybody from the Bronx or Texas. Met a student at the seminary a number of years ago. I'd never met him before. It was an introductory freshman group. He talked to me for a minute. I said, what part of, your, of Canada are you from? He said, how do you know I'm from Canada? I said, because I've been there. So they identified him like that. Now, he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Who said that? Why, the man who said, Lord, you can count on me. The one who said, my devotion is so great, it's willing to go to the point of death, and backed it up by taking on a hundred men. And if you're sitting there saying, You know, Hendricks, I would never say that. Then you are already on the same road that Peter took. Will you look at the last verse? Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered. He called to mind. He thought about the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter thought, but it was too little. It was too late. And that's your problem. That's my most serious problem. It's my judgment that those of us in the evangelical community are behind in our think time. It is said that 75% of the people in America never think. 15% of them think they think. (laughs) But merely rearrange their prejudices. Only 10% think. 
It's the most incongruous thing in all of the world to have an evangelical Christian thoroughly committed to the full authority and inspiration of the word of God, not thinking. It's amazing how many people in our society, in our churches, are finding themselves at the top of the pile in terms of their field and at the bottom of life in terms of spiritual impact. I am constantly running into older men and women, 55, 65, even in their 70s, who are sliding for home. They're reaching for the bench. They're telling me how long it is till retirement. I say, my friend, you may retire from a job, but you never retire from the Christian life. It's the result of people who have stopped thinking. I met a man not too long ago. This man has the dubious distinction of having wiped out four children. Two of them in drugs, one of them in prostitution, and the fourth one we have been unable to find and have been searching for him for now for almost 16 years. And he said to me one day in my office, Hendricks, I put my money on a dead horse. See, he's thinking. Now. And if I had only one word to say to Christian parents, I would say, you better ask God to make you a thinking person. And because we do not think more, therefore, when we get into a worship service and there's some quiet, we don't know what the world to do with ourselves. You know, the average Christian left alone with his thoughts is tremendously lonely. And so he's saying, uh, Stevenson, uh, sing something, you know, play something, do something. And I say, why don't you do something very unique? Why don't you think? <laughs> That's what worship is all about. It's restoring your biblical perspective. It's taking an eternal view toward your marriage, toward your family, toward your job. But I'm finding over and over again, wherever I go, guys feeling sorry for themselves that they have to work out in the marketplace. At a conference not too long ago, a guy came up, he said, Brother Hendricks, I'm the only Christian in our company. I said, you got to be kidding. No. I said, you mean to tell me there's no other believer there? That's right. I said, you mean to tell me that God Almighty entrusted that outfit to you? (laughs) See, the average layman thinks of his job as his penalty. That's what I got to do for 40, 50 hours a week in order to get down to the church, to my ministry. Uh, uh. You may have a ministry down at the church. My friend, your ministry is out in the marketplace. It's on that job. It's in that community. It's in that home. And I can tell you as a professor in a theological seminary, now going on 39 years, that I would 
give my life if I had more students like I have had from Christian homes. Oh, we got some wonderful students committed wall to wall, but they don't have the basic habit patterns. Habit patterns that are really built into a person's life in their home. Habit patterns that ought to be refocused in the process of worship. See, that's why Paul said, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And when you become a Christian, my friend, you don't put your mind into neutral. You don't put it in a bucket and fire a forty-five in it. Because Jesus said you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because worship is always built on the basic concept that God has spoken. I'm working with a new convert. It's so refreshing. May his tribe increase. When I first got involved with the guy's life, I said to him, uh, hey, you got a Bible? No. I said, well, take this. This is the New Testament. Read it. So he takes it. A week later, he comes back and says, I read it. Well, I said, I know. But, you know, read the whole thing. No, I said, I read the whole thing, including the palms in the back. He said, I understand there's another part to this. Referring to the Old Testament. So I got him a Bible. I gave it to him. And three weeks later, he came back. He'd read the entire scriptures. There are elders in many of our evangelical churches that have never read the Bible once, once in their life. And it's so refreshing to work with him. He's got that simplistic faith. We came across the passage, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. And he said, hold it, time out. He said, does that mean what I think it means? You know, what what does the Greek say? (laughs) Already been introduced to that one. You know how we use this stuff to maneuver around it? You know, well, as... <laughs> I said, you know what the Greek says? No, well, what's it say, Hendrix? It says, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things it possesses. Guy walks out of that session and makes major life changes. The last two years, this man has given a million and a half to the cause of Christ... And every time I see him, he says, you know, I got more. I figured out how I can give it. Because he takes very seriously what Jesus said. Do you? You want to save your life? Jesus says, throw it away. Throw it away? You got to be kidding. Don't you know you only go around once in life? You better grab all the gusto you can get. 
I don't remember Jesus saying that. <laughs> See, because we allow the media to so brainwash us. And we do so little thinking from a biblical perspective. I was ministering in Brazil with Word of Life and their fantastic ministry. And I just stood there by one of the houses and wept. Beautifully constructed buildings, dormitories, where they have 16 young men, 16 young women, and a disciple maker. They are so committed to this process of education. I said to the guy one day, how much does this cost? He said, we can put it up for about 20000 He said, $20,000? He said, that's right. It's quality stuff. Administered in 74 countries around the world, men and women, and I'm here to tell you the work of Jesus Christ is languishing because we are not thinking with an eternal perspective. And that's why the world is throwing up on Christianity. See, the basic question of the pagans out in Chicago, down in Dallas, out in Boston, where I just came from, anywhere you go is the same. It's not, is Christianity true? It's, does it make a difference? And when those of us who are in high positions of leadership and those of us elders in a church and those of us parents in homes talk a better game than we play, then we are invalidating the very message. And we need to come back and get a new glimpse as Isaiah did so that we will not boast so much. We will not pray so little. We will not act so soon. And we'll stop thinking so little, so late. Julian the Apostate in the third century was determined to blot out every trace of Christianity. And to his disgust, he learned the law of spiritual thermodynamics, namely, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. The more he persecuted the thing, the more it flourished. Finally got his little straggly band of men in an upper room and he shouted to them, Bah! Christianity provokes too much thinking. Why, even the slaves are thinking, which to a Roman mind was incredible because the Romans said slaves do not think. But my friends, slaves do think under the impact of the Word of God. Do you? The impact of Moody Founders Week could be transformed all out of recognition of every man, every woman, every student, every individual did nothing else but say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You've been listening to Dr. Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.